Retail Revolution is a special limited podcast created specifically for retailing and service design, a unique course that is part of the Fashion Management Graduate Program at Parsons School of Design in New York City. Each episode features in-depth conversations with guest experts in omni-channel retailing with myriad perspectives, technology, consumer engagement, data analytics, merchandising, and more. We pay special attention to the short and long-term challenges and implications of COVID-19 and potential opportunities to rethink retail's future. Retail Revolution is produced by Joshua Williams and hosted by Christopher Lacey. Both are assistant professors in the School of Fashion at Parsons. Welcome to our very first episode of Retail Revolution, where we discuss all topics relating to retailing and service design. Today, we have with us Ronald Thurston, Vice President of Stores for Intermix, author, and a member of the Board of Directors for Goodwill. With 25 years of industry experience, he has worked with such brands as St. Laurent, Bonobos, Tory Burch, and Apple. Welcome to the show, Ron. Thank you very much, Christopher. Great to be here. So happy to have you. Thanks Thank for, you. for taking out time on a, a Saturday morning to speak with us. So I would love just for our listeners to hear, you know, about you, um, your career trajectory uh, throughout uh, the industry, just, you know. Sure. Happy to. Thank you. Uh, so I will go all the way back to kind of growing up in, in Northern California. I grew up in Lake Tahoe. Cool. Um, which is one of the most really, truly beautiful places in the country, maybe in the world. And I had a grandfather who um, had a construction company who started building kind of custom homes, but eventually became um, the, the primary contractor for building all of the Safeway grocery stores on the West Coast. And he built a pretty large organization as a CEO. And uh, I started traveling with him uh, as a kind of teenager and just watching him in action. And what I really learned from him really early on was about service and about the idea of serving others and about how to build a team through kind of leadership and empathy and how to, pe- how to have kind of a team around you that wanted to work for you as much as they wanted to work for the company. And I really admired him for that. And as I started to think about studying, I studied fashion design and I studied retail administration at FITM on the West Coast. Uh, and as my career began, I always thought about, you know, how do I become that kind of leader that's not just about leading for the company, but through your own kind of personal, emotional intelligence um, and, and started that way as I really thought about it. If I really thought about my leadership in retail, that's really where it started for me. Wow. Wow. That's a great, that's a great journey because, you know, I don't think many people think of, you know, well, now everyone is thinking of, of grocery stores, right? Uh, well, that's true. <laughs> you, know, you, you think about what, what grocery stores do and, and there's a lot to learn when you think about retailing, uh, in grocery stores and, and, from the psychology of how they're set up and how you navigate through them. And, and there are mm-hmm. groups that are doing amazing things with, you know, how they're doing service design. And I think of Kroger and, and didn't recognize just how big of a company they are and, and, and their service design and, and what we could learn from it from the luxury fashion world. Mm-hmm. And so what that brings me to, to wanting to ask you, when you think about 
retailing and service design relative to luxury. What do you mm-hmm. think the luxury industry is, does extremely well? But what do you think needs improvement? So I would, you know, I think about luxury in terms of in the evolution of it, because I think often luxury is perceived as price. And so you right. would say luxury is, you know, the high end of cars, the high end of homes, the high end of apparel or, or accessories. And I think that, that today that feels like a very old way to think about it. I actually think about luxury today as time and about, I, I think safety is now a luxury. Yeah. Um, and we really think, I think really differently about service and serving others that service shouldn't be a luxury, but service really is. Um, and so even like the Apple's business or service models were built on the Ritz-Carlton um, idea of how to serve others. Um, yeah. And so Apple is a luxury brand um, that has a really incredible service model built on the hotel industry. But I think service and that at that level doesn't have to be about price. So now I'm really, I think differently about, you know, in my own world at Intermix, while it's a, an assortment of luxury brands, not everything is designer. So there's a mix, but the level of service that I expect is really high. So luxury, I think, is about intimacy and about service and about kind of trust and time. And how does that all work together t- today, not just price, if that makes sense? No, it, it makes yeah. absolute sense. And I think, you know, you saying that and, and more, you know, luxury does not mean the same thing that it meant you know, in the days of dynasty and right. it was the lavish apartments and, and gold and, you know, big shoulder pads. Although I'd love <laughs> Oh, I, and I'm much older than you are. I have an even stronger appreciation. <laughs> <laughs> so, I actually lived it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so exactly. So, you know, I mean, there's that, there's that idea that that's what luxury was. And, and I think, you know, luxury shifted definitely when we went through the recession of, of, in 2008. Mm-hmm. And we had to rethink what service looked like from the fashion side because, you know, people were just walking through the door and, and we would service them and they'd go about their business and we never did follow up really. And that was the mindset then. And, and so that crisis created a different way of how we approach luxury. So, I, you know, my question to you now then is when you look at retail, you know, customer engagement. What did you think ha- has has been the biggest shift in the last five years? Yeah, I think the the biggest shift is about the relationship that you have with the brand. So luxury was often, yeah, I've made I've made my purchase. I've I've bought the car that I wanted. I bought the handbag that I wanted. The jewelry piece. All of the things you think about in a high price. And once you've made that purchase, the relationship ended. It's like, okay, great. I saved up enough money. I bought what I wanted, I'm ready to show this off, and now I'm done. Because your likelihood of actually purchasing, um, for an, an average person, multiple luxury purchases in a year is pretty low. You know, you're, it's usually you know, one or two big purchases a year on average. But the, I think what has changed now is in order for that business to continue, and every luxury brand now has discovered the need for a wide price point, Mm-hmm. It's a relationship um, that you've built from initial interaction and the follow-up that you have and the work that's done, even if it takes six months to get the client back in the door, 
you can't you can really no longer just say okay great thank you very much maybe i write you a thank you note and you call it a day the evolution of the industry is great well how are you like are you safe right now like what's what is going on in your personal life so that ultimately it leads to further sales down the road but it's a very long game now and i think that's where it shifted it went from kind of the purchase world just making a purchase to the relationship to the long game of a lifetime of purchases that go on. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, that means that something becomes really important, which is, you know, how important is client retention compared to client acquisition than in your business? Yeah, it's, it's huge. And and I think the, the client retention piece plays into exactly what I was just saying of, in my own business, there's a direct correlation between client retention and sales performance. So stores that typically have low client retention have low either like negative comp performance, and um, we can talk a little bit more about KPIs, but you know, overall sales performance and client retention go hand in hand today. It's different, again, it's different when traffic is down and the transaction dollar amount might be different. If that client isn't retained over time, you can't grow a healthy business. It's not possible. So you need to continue to work both ends of the funnel. You need to retain, you need to retain and you need to acquire. Um, I, I won't say equally because I think it's very different by brand, but right. there, there, you'll always have drop off on both ends. And on the top end, when you think about uh, retention, things happen in a client's life. It happens in my stores too. A client gets married, she moves, she starts her family. You know, every lots of things all of us have in our personal life changes our our spending power. And so, if you're acquiring, at the same time you're growing your client file, you're retaining her from shopping last year. It becomes very healthy. But if part of it, if you do, if you can't retain through great service and great follow up and great relationships, and you're not acquiring, you're dead in the water. If you're only acquiring but not retaining, but they, they start to drop out. So it's, for me, it's a very like healthy balance on both ends of the funnel of acquiring and retaining and acquiring and retaining. And it's a constant conversation. And I think for any, really any brand today, and I don't think this is about luxury. I think every brand has to really think about how do I retain my current client base and how do I grow my client file? Absolutely. And, and, I think coming out of this, to your point, you mentioned you mentioned traffic, and you know, anytime there is, and we technically have been feeling the impact of low traffic, especially in in New York retail, for months uh, with the slow of it, and and it typically, you know, everything always ends up moving east to west, and everyone kind of feels the slow in traffic due to you know less tourism, and so you really have to look at your company internally and go, are we doing the right things with our existing client base? Because yep. we're dropping in traffic. So, and just because we're dropping in traffic doesn't mean that we can drop in conversion of the people who are walking through the door or in sales. Correct. And so, you, you can't continue to put pressure on those acquired clients. You can't just say, well, the ones I have, I'm going to ask them to spend more. Uh, you, <laughs> you can't. And so you've got to say, well, great. I'm, what can I do from a marketing perspective, from a 
Um, you know, again, I, I'm all, I always veer left back to service. And I would say, if you actually have incredible service, your, the reputation for that translates into friends, family, social, which drives traffic, which if they have a similar experience to what they've, what the perception of your brand is, you've acquired, but then did you retain? So I, like it's, I find that all just fascinating and will become probably one of the most important topics the next five years. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So you, you talked about KPIs and, and I, I want us to dig into this a bit because, you know, I, I love analytics and, and strategy and what that looks like as much as my creative side. So I want you to talk to us about, you know, what are the KPIs you're using to assess business performance amongst mm-hmm. Sure. I think the ones I use are very similar in the industry, so this won't feel super foreign, but there's always a, there's always a sales to last year performance, a comparable store, comp store sales number, um, which is, in the, as a publicly traded company, is always the number that is reported in the financials, is how, how is your business compared to last year, just as a baseline. Um, we always look at traffic, by location, uh, by by day, by week, by month, by year, and and dig into traffic patterns. And you know, I do expect stores to take it even one step further and say, what is my traffic by hour, um, by day for proper scheduling and conversion? As we look at traffic, we look at conversion, converting, just walk-in traffic. Mm-hmm. Uh, overall, just DPT or average basket. You know, what? How much is as as you've converted? How much is each client spending, and how many units are in that basket? Um, so if you're on, you know, within this the scope of my brands and my company, Old Navy, um, Gap, Banana Republic, Athleta, uh, Hill City, Janie and Jack, Intermix, Intermix uh, has the highest average basket, but probably the lowest UPT because we have the highest price. Right. As opposed to an old navy, which probably you know has a UPT of a three, but has a thirty dollar average basket. So you kind of how does that all shift around? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, of course, client retention that we looked at. Um, average unit retail is a big metric. So what is actually the the price of everything that you've sold? So you really you're managing the average basket through UPT and through AUR and say, well, great. If I really, if I can't grow my UPT and my traffic's down, I can grow it through price. And maybe the, the AUR in an average store needs to be higher or lower to drive conversion and, and move it all around in a, in a different way. Um, so those are probably the biggest ones outside of even just the margin of the product. You really look at gross margin by category, by store, by city, some of those kinds of things too. And actually, let's let's talk about a, a few things um, relative to you know you, you started out about you know comp uh, you know comparisons between stores this year last year. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also this other number that always exists, which which is called plan. Right. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> which, you know, depending upon what organization you work for, plan is you know 
great or plan can kind of drive you crazy. You know, I remember working for organizations where it was like, yeah, you, you might've beat last year, but you didn't get to plan. So don't be excited Um, (laughs) because last year doesn't matter. Um, So I want to talk about, you know, if you're in retail and service design and you're looking at these plan numbers and you know, if your, your plan number is astronomical, how do you approach that and stay positive and keep your team positive? Not saying that this is occurring at Intermix, but you know, yeah. in past lives, you know, what would you say to someone to keep their team positive? So I would, I would dig into where does that plan come from? Because often the, the, the company sets the plan to cover the upside of the expense of outperformance. So for example, if you work in commission sales and there are incentives built into kind of your selling model, plan would say, well, great, the, the, the higher the plan number, the higher expected sales number, the higher the commission dollars that we're going to pay out, probably likely the higher bonus number, the higher actual payroll that we spend to deliver that sales. So it's plan is often a derivative of covering the expenses for increased sales. Um, and so I, when I have been frustrated by the same conversation, it's like, well, how did you actually get to that number? And what are you trying to deliver? What do you want me to do? Right. Um, and how do, how do the metrics? So I think what's important on the whole conversation of KPIs is building sales plans from the bottom up, which is what I do today and say, well, what actually have been the traffic trends? What are, um, all the different KPIs, and does it actually roll into this number, or is this number a fake number? Uh, and so we actually really try to build realistic sales plans using the KPIs so that I can actually then teach a store and say, yeah, you, your plan looks like plus 30% over last year, but here's here are your trends, here are the KPIs, maybe here's some a product launch that's happening uh, what are all the different factors that go into it? Because I agree with you. Sometimes the store receives that number and is like, whoa, like, how am I ever going to do this? Yeah. But if you break it down and you were like, actually, your UPT has been trending to this. Your conversion has been this. Your traffic has been trending up. All of these things combined, the math equates to this different plan number. Um, so I think there's an emotional side of it for sure. But they're, a well-done sales plan has all the math behind it to help um, like teach and teach the store actually how to get there. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and to your point, when it's a well done sales plan and, and the math backs it up, mm-hmm. it also makes it much easier for Storeline to strategize effectively, you know, when it comes to, you know, does it mean we might need to hire another person who can, can produce this amount of volume or, or, strategize differently in, in multiple ways, but if it's well thought out and logical, it makes the strategy easier to follow. It, it really does, it helps. So I would just, I'd push back on, you know, when it doesn't make sense, like help, help understand why and, and how you can help, you know, help. I think I'll veer right for a moment. I think often in stores, when you think about retail design, um, the more, the more you communicate up, the better. The more you communicate about what's actually happening in your business, the, the idea of um, trends in your market, trends in your, on your street or in your mall, like what's, the, the more you can share with 
kind of upper upper management, the better your sales plans will be, the more realistic things will happen. Um, and I guess I'm also just thinking forward a bit. None of us are going to be traveling very much for a while. We're going to have to rely on each other to share the facts about what's happening. Because uh, I think store visits are going to slow down. Um, you know, I'm not getting on a plane anytime soon to see my stores in California. So I think we have to um, all work together this year to share facts and to share information because sales plans are going to be really difficult to predict this year. For sure. And, and, and to your point about not being able to travel and, and the changes of what we can expect, you know, our industry is known to, you know, I, it's funny, whenever I started my practice of, of meditating years ago, and, and I remember, you know, that thing, they always tell you, be present. Mm -hmm. And I finally said, I was like, you, you don't understand. It's difficult for me to be present because I work in an industry where I'm always. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. I'm never in the moment, right? Like yep. June and we're all, you know, people are excited about summer. We're all thinking about holiday. And when it's holiday, we're all thinking about sale break in May. So, yeah. so um, true. So when you, when you think about that and you go, okay, th this is a wild time. How are you strategizing? Like, where is your head right now in strategizing for the next six months to a year to protect the downside of what's happening? How are you navigating this right now? Yeah, it's a really difficult time uh, for every brand uh, because there's so many unknowns. I think the other point, the other um, side to what you just said of like, we're always thinking forward. This is a really difficult time to think forward because it's all unknown. And we're so good in retail about knowing the facts and having the KPIs and having a plan and knowing what's happening in fashion and we can predict everything. And this has become very unpredictable. Yeah. Uh, and so I think we're using facts like what has happened to the business trends and traffic trends in China. And so if you're the first to experience this, what has happened, what happened 90 days ago, four months ago, and what's happening today. And just as a somewhat of a guidepost um, to help us figure out how to predict this. But I would say no one's going to be able to say exactly what's going to happen. I think it will be very different by city. Um, I, you know, here in New York City, it's particularly bad. Um, and so there may be parts of the country that recover faster. Uh, but I, to answer your question, I don't think there's an, there isn't an answer today. And we're going to have to constantly reevaluate and re um, reshuffle the plan. And there's definitely a goal of conserving, being on, erring on the conservative side um, before we um, know what's going to happen. Um, yeah. It's a really, it's a very tough time for our industry. Um, but and, and we talk about service, but this this will give us some opportunities to be at our best in the future. I, I agree with you on that. I think, and 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 that's the you know we just talked about how this impacts your your ability to strategize from a business kind of numbers perspective. But you know, I do want to hear from you how you think this will change how the the customer engagement and and what they will expect from retail when we come out of this. What mm -hmm. what is happening uh, or feel? Uh, so I, I think everything that we have wanted 
retail to be from a relationship side, like where we started this conversation, when I think about intimacy and relationships and the, the, the closeness that we all crave, particularly now in retail, this is almost forcing that to happen uh, because the idea of just being a place to buy more stuff uh, is not relevant anymore. And to, we'd say, but I actually really miss everyone that works in that store. I really like, I want to come and see you. I can't wait to give you a hug. I can't wait to like, be in your space, regardless of what you sell. I think the, what will happen is we have to just be that much better at the relationship, the follow-up, the connection, um, the way that we potentially sell. And I think, and what we sell, I mean, there's a lot being written right now around um, assessing, I guess, how we've assessed our own need for, for products and services, um, and that brands will have to just understand their relevancy of what they're selling. Um, so it's like it's in, it's a very interesting time, but that's why as hard as this is and, and as financially devastating as this is for companies and brands and people, uh, when I think about the actual retail experience, we will have to be what we've always wanted to be, uh, which is creating relationships and connections to the customer walking in the door. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I also think it's going to push us in the direction we've been wanting to go relative to talked about what, what does sustainability look like and yep. what does conscious behavior look like. I mean, I think right now we're, we're in a space where we're learning the things that we pretty much could do without, but that we didn't do without them because we didn't have to. Right. Um, and that that will automatically change the mindset of of any customer for any reason. For example, I mean, look, I love coconut cream pie, but because I can't go get coconut cream pie as often as I used to, <laughs> I felt better for it. No, but like I, I back on my or, or you'll learn how to make it yourself, right? Which I can do. Which I can do. <laughs> you know, I I think it it becomes a point where there's going to be really conscious activity when someone walks into your or engages with your brand. Yes. To, your, to your other point, I think when we come out of this, we are going to see a, a group of consumers that are supporting brick and mortar businesses better than they ever have before. Yes. And, and you know, we, you and I have talked before about retail apocalypse and, and people saying the death of brick and mortar. And I think this will show that there will be no death to brick and mortar because people will come out with a sense of going, I, I want you to support my local brick and mortar businesses, but as a whole, because it means I'm making sure that should something like this happen again, we have the strength as an economy to, to not have people lose their job. 100% agree. And I think those that fall out of this, that actually don't end up making it, um, and there's a lot being written about department stores and such, you know, is that really, is that, was that the future before this? And is it the future now? I think that's a big question mark, but I agree with you on local retail, you know, even local being Manhattan, you know, but maybe it's street, it's not, you know, Macy's Herald Square. Right. And so I think we have to think about what is, 
what's the model of retail? What is the, what is the service expectation? What are you selling? How are you selling it? Um, and it's almost like this is almost going to dial it all back, you know, the 50 years in some ways, and things will become more simple um, and more, more connected. Yeah, it's a really interesting time. When I was um, running Saint Laurent, I had my, you know, the, fir the first um, store he opened was in um, 1969, around there, um, on the left bank of Paris. Um, but I really thought about, like, what was, if I were Yves Saint Laurent and I were, I had my own store, what would, what would I want it to feel like? What would, what would the experience have been? And I had the, the furniture in my office um, kind of recreated to that time period because I really wanted to understand you know, during those years what, what was the service in a, in a boutique in 1969 on the left bank of Paris um, with a new designer? Like, what would that have felt like? Right. And right. I wanted to be able to experience that like every day, like be in my office every day and experience it as if it were 1969. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, just like I was in a Mad Men episode. And, but I think it's really true. And right. I actually, I go back and think, like, this is, that's the future. Like, yeah. Mad, Men, Mad Men is the future in its own, like, unique retail way. And just, um, I'm not as, I'm, I'm actually quite optimistic um, about what this will bring, not tomorrow, um, but in years to come. I, I have to say, I, I, I am as well. And I know that there is that... I think you're, you're you, you know, you use an example of thinking about 1959. I think of it as, you know, we we probably needed to level set. No, we needed yeah. to level set as a station, yeah. right? I mean, when we when we look at, you know, now that there's so much, how much of the environment has been cleaned up in two months' time, you know, uh, when, when they're looking at what's happening in China, like. They're actually out here at this point. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting how it's forcing us to slow down a bit. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you something because um, you are working on a project that I am super excited about. Um, so what is that about? What, what are you writing about? What are you going to tell us? <laughs> I'm going to tell you all of this and more. Uh, so I, I have, um, I think like many people, um, that have been in this industry for a long time, th there's a point where you actually want to be able to share your experiences with people that are just starting in, in the industry um, to, to talk about the fact that this is an incredible, re incredible career. And so the working title of my book is uh, Retail, the Accidental Career That's Okay to Love. May change through editing, but <laughs> you know, the idea of like, this, it is okay to love this. This right. is an incredible place to work with people who share a similar interest, who have this ideal that this is actually not a great career and that this is an incredible thing to do. And so the book is really for the industry of celebrating everyone that works in it and to say, you know, this is a great career to love. Here's some helpful, like Ron's leadership kind of ideas, but, um, and how to be successful in retail. Uh, and so I've been working on it since um, October of last year, and I'm hoping to be on shelves by this fall at some point. Well, I'm super excited to get it. It sounds amazing. Thank you. 
Yeah. Um, so you will have to keep us updated on where that goes, and we'll we'll have to speak to you again. Um, I want to ask you, you know, you you you've taken on a lot, you've done a lot in, in your career, you've engaged a lot of people. Naturally, that has created this desire to to talk about it in in book form. Mm-hmm. If you were to think about who you are now from where you started, what is the skill or the talent that you go? I couldn't do without this. This is the one that, like, I can't not have disability. Otherwise, I just wouldn't succeed. Mm. I would, I, I would say it's actually a level of empathy um, and curiosity uh, that is an important component in leadership and will become even more important. I, I think the idea of leadership in to do it as I say, I'm not really curious how you think about this. This is just how this works. Um, those days are over. I think that my own leadership style has been about listening and learning and crafting the culture of a company based on what the team wants, not what I want. And being empathetic and being curious and being um, open to change and learning based on the audience, um, which is a different way that I think some in, some companies have operated um, from, from a very like tops down. I really do think about this, uh, my own leadership style in a bottoms up kind of a way. Right. Um, that, and I, even today when I think about, you know, all the incredible commissioned salespeople who are selling, you know, and hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars, those are the most important people in my organization because they are the closest to the customer. They have the most feedback on product. They have the most impact on what the customer says about the brand. Uh, and so I spend the majority of my time actually with the sales teams in stores uh, because I learn the most from them about what the customer is saying and how they're feeling. So that that part of my own just leadership has always been there um, and I will continue for as long as I'm doing this. That's amazing. Oh, amazing. Thank you. I want to ask you, you know, empathy is, is a really, it's an interesting skill because I think we often say, okay, empathy is this something that, you know, you either are born with and you kind of have empathy and you're an empathetic person or you aren't. And I, I challenge when people say that because I think you can absolutely grow your skill of empathy, right? Mm-hmm. If you're paying attention, and I think the fact that you put empathy and curiosity together, um, I think if you're a curious person, you start to learn and approach things in different ways, and therefore it creates empathy, right? Mm-hmm. A person who's never curious about the world going on around them, you can't be empathetic to what you don't know about. Correct. Yeah, and it's difficult. If, if you haven't been curious, you can't put yourself in their place because you, right. you don't understand it. You just don't understand it. Um, and I think that right there, you know, those two things, empathy and curiosity, could cure a lot of ills that we have, not just in, in, in the fashion industry when it comes to... Um, diversity and and uh, inclusivity, but on a global scale, mm-hmm. if they looked at themselves and said, "What is my empathy? What is my em- level of empathy? And what is my level of curiosity?" And right. I need to go with it. 
Right. And I think it's balancing, you know, if I go back to the purpose of the call around kind of retail architecture, it's also been balancing the financial obligations that all of us have of running a successful business. Because it's, you could say I'm highly empathetic and curious and I want to give everybody everything they asked for. Uh, but the reality is you can't afford that. And so you, you have to be able to say, I'm, I'm curious, I've, I've learned, I've listened, um, and based on everything I've heard, these, this is what we're going to do. And it doesn't check every box always. And I also, um, I try to be as transparent as I can with as many people as I can in my organization and say, I heard you, but this is, that is not financially viable. So, but this is what we can do. And they're like, okay, well, thanks for listening. I appreciate that. Um, and, right. and because you were transparent and you listened, their likelihood to actually follow you and to um, kind of navigate their own path, but in a way that was um, worked that you did together, I find actually their commitment to do it's really high if you lead it that way. Wow. Impressive. Impressive. So what do you think Intumix does better than anyone else? It's a great question. Um, I think it's two things. Uh, you know, one is the mix and the edit. Um, so Intermix is the largest multi-brand uh, women's specialty um, store in the country. Uh, and you know, the edit, we really work hard on the edit by, by store, by city, uh, by customer type, and really look at the true assortment from our own private label brand through the highest end of designers and just how to mix it all together and show her how to wear it. Um, so the, I'd say the edit is number one, and number two is the stylist. And, and say, okay, great. I wanna understand how to wear all this together, how to take a blazer and wear it five different ways. I wanna wear it to work, I wanna wear it to dinner. I have events to attend, what do I do? Um, and so the, I would say it's the edit and the, the stylist and the service that, the, if you put those things two together, that's really powerful when done well. And we've had some couple really successful years. I, I would agree with you. I, I think, you know, I I love going into an intermix store because there there is this um, level of fun, right? There's mm -hmm. energy. And I have to say, I've been to multiple intermix locations and, and kudos to you that there is consistency. And I think that's something that's difficult to, to get, right? Um, you're kind of always searching for that. And I don't know if it's because you once worked at Apple, but I used to reference the fact that the thing about Apple is no matter which Apple store you walked into, you knew your service was going to be the same. And yep. that made you feel very comfortable in that space because you knew what you would expect. And that comfort level made you feel like this is where I'm supposed to be. And I think Intermix, you, you, you've done a very good job, you and your team, of creating that. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I think it's it's so interesting because then I think you want it to be the same, but you want it, every experience to be different. And you know, that only happens through, again, like being empathetic and being curious. And to say, you know, every customer that walks through the door, every stylist, the first thing you do is ask questions. You should. And, and not like 
what are you looking for today? Because that question drives me crazy. It's more <laughs> like, tell me who you are. Tell me about your closet. Tell me about what you do. Tell me about your, fav- your five favorite pieces in your closet. Like, let's get to know each other. Maybe we just met. Let's spend 10 minutes of me just learning about you before I say, well, you know, if you need anything, let me know. My name's Ron. Like, that doesn't work. Uh, right. You have to spend time. So I want it to be consistent, but I also want it to be highly unique for the thousands of people that come in the store every week or used to. They will. They will. <laughs> um, so I, it's that it's that balance, I think, that we all want um, in brands today. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, I have to tell you. This has been an amazing conversation with you this morning. I'm, I'm glad we had the time to do it. Um, I want to close it out by giving our listeners, um, you know, some information on you. How can uh, our students reach out to you uh, in the future um, via Twitter or Instagram? Or, and how can they stay up to date with what's going on at Internet? Thank you. I appreciate that. I would say two things because being New York based, I will plug Goodwill. So for all fashion lovers in the world, as you're cleaning out your closets, um, don't forget to, um, I would appreciate, I should say, donate to Goodwill. The revenue that's generated from the Goodwill stores fuels all the work they do in the community for people with obstacles to employment. And this is going to become even harder for them um, because Goodwill funds things like temp agencies and um, you know, people that work at the MTA, people work at CVS, a lot of that comes through temp agencies, um, through Goodwill, funneled through your donations in the retail stores. Um, so there's, I would just plug Goodwill. And number two, um, LinkedIn's the best place to find me. I do uh, post a lot on there and you can kind of understand my, my head even a little bit more, LinkedIn, and then um, for the book, if you go to ourretailstories.com um, and just sign up to, for, to be notified, um, as the book gets closer, um, I'll be sending out some probably email blasts with information at ourretailstories.com. Fantastic. Ron, thank you. thank you so much for your time. It's been a blast. We can't thank wait you. to have you back. Or I'd love, love, let's person. do it in person next time. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you take care. Thank you, you too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Retail Revolution. A very special thank you to everyone who has helped make this podcast possible. Our guests, our students, and fellow faculty at Parsons School of Design, especially in such an extraordinary and unprecedented time. Our theme music was composed by Spencer Powell. Be well and stay tuned for our next episode.